Greetings to you from Worthington, Minnesota, where I'm a retired pastor, and I'm glad to be able to introduce to you today David Fettis, who will be our first uh, preacher, and uh, you probably, he's the pastor of the Family of Faith Christian Reformed Church in Moni, Illinois, and is also the provost of the Christian Leaders Institute. You probably remember, many of you at least, I grew up listening to the Back to God Hour every Sunday morning, and if you didn't be quiet during that time, uh, you were in trouble with my dad anyway. Uh, and, uh, but I must say that I wasn't a kid anymore when David was the preacher at the Back to God Hour. He was there for 16 years. He's married to Wendy, grew up in Bethel Christian Reformed Church of uh, Church Hill at Manhattan, Montana, and he has uh, nine children eight who are still with us, and one with her Savior. And uh, he has nine grandchildren and two more on the way, and uh, that's a joy to them, uh, no doubt. So I'm glad to introduce to you Reverend David Fettis, who will be our first speaker. Thank you, David. What a great privilege it is to be able to sing together and praise God together and gather around his word and band together as friends and colleagues in the gospel. Today we're going to be focusing on God's word to us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. What a tremendous passage from the book of Hebrews. And before getting into the focus of our message and indeed of the whole convention, hold fast, I just want to look at the broader message of Hebrews and where this fits in. If you had to summarize the book of Hebrews, you could do so with a declaration and an exhortation. The declaration is, Jesus is greater. The exhortation is, hold fast. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath and any rest that was given before Jesus. Jesus is greater than the temple or the tabernacle. Jesus is greater than any sacrifice. Jesus is even greater than any of that great cloud of witnesses because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so again and again, the author 
of this book emphasizes the greatness of Jesus surpassing all others, and then he pauses again and again and again to say, now hold fast. In this particular passage where it speaks of holding fast, we want to think about three main exhortations that come even there. One is simply draw near. We have Jesus, and because we have Jesus, we have confidence, and so we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because of Jesus' precious blood and because of his great love for us, we can enter in behind the curtain. Unlike the old covenant where only a priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year, God invites us into the heavenly Holy of Holies because Jesus has gone there before us and because his blood has made a new and living way for us. And his torn body is like the tearing of that curtain. And he opens the way to God. And because that is so, we can come to Jesus by faith and receive his salvation. And we can come to him again and again and again to receive mercy and find help in our time of need. And so before I talk about holding fast, I want to emphasize very strongly the need to draw near. To draw near particularly in prayer. To be people of worship to be people who love and adore God and are glad to be in his presence and have a passion for God and desire to know him better and better and better. Because if you try to hold fast, if you try to uphold sound doctrine, but it is not nourished by being in God's presence and God's presence in you, you will soon dry up and turn brittle and sour and powerless. But we don't just draw near to God so that we can be a little better at standing up for doctrine. We draw near to God because God has made a way and we desire God. And so I encourage and invite you again to, to draw near by Jesus' blood. When those priests of old would draw near in the tabernacle, or when Moses himself would draw near in that tent of meeting, something happened. You remember when Moses would emerge from his time with God, his face would shine. When those priests entered in and offered the holy incense and no other formula was permitted, uh, that formula could not be used in anything except the tabernacle incense itself. When they came out of there, they smelled different. And when they came from the place of worship and of fellowship with God, there was a scent about them. And may God grant us that we can draw near to his presence so that when we emerge, the one who made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, may we shine with that light and when we draw near into his presence, then when we emerge, may we be the scent of Christ, whether of life unto life or of death unto death, but the scent of Christ. Draw near. And then, of course, hold fast. Jesus is greater, so 
hold fast, there is no better, no one else that you would want to hold on to. And we're going to say quite a bit more about that. But then also, stir up. Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It's so very important to do that, to encourage each other in our times of worship, to encourage each other in our times of fellowship, and to keep on stirring one another up. A lot of my doctoral research was done on the decline of the church in England and in Europe. And there was a phase in European life where there was a common conception that you can be a good Christian without going to church. Probably didn't work for even one generation, but it certainly didn't for two. When people no longer gathered together in church, their beliefs began to fade because they were no longer being nourished. And another major factor was that that worship time personally and in the home uh, fell to the side. And there were other contributing factors, but those were two major ones. A loss of personal times of devotion and a lack of times gathering to worship and to be encouraged and within a generation or two, belief had also collapsed. The notion that you can be a good Christian without stirring one another up to love and good deeds and helping each other to stand in the truth, that notion is proven false by observation as well as, of course, by the Word of God. So draw near, hold fast, stir up. And now let's focus especially on holding fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That is the text that we want to focus on especially today. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And that's a theme that runs through the book of Hebrews again and again and again. The Bible in that great book keeps on telling us, and it says, Therefore, my holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So you see in that text, there's a heavenly calling, the hope, and it mentions the hope again at the end. It mentions Jesus. It mentions our confession, and it speaks now of holding fast. Take care, brothers, it says in chapter 3, a little later, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So there you have it again and again and again. The word of God, Jesus, hold fast the confession. Hebrews chapter 6, God guaranteed this with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. God guaranteed it 
with an oath. And so we hold fast because he holds us fast. And he's an anchor. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And then if you move beyond the book of Hebrews, just a few more hold fast. You might find this a little repetitive, but you, uh, you will find people who say, you know, people make such a big deal about doctrine and standing firm. You know, why would you want to do that when all we need is love? Well, Jesus himself says in explaining the parable of the four soils, as for the seed and the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with perseverance. They hold fast the word, and they have a heart that is changed. It's an honest and good heart. Uh, if you don't think that sounds uh, very reformed, you do have a good heart. If you've been born again, you have a good and honest heart. There may be other things that still distract you, but you have received from God a new heart, and that heart perseveres. That heart bears fruit, and that heart holds fast the word. The Apostle Paul, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, Now I commend you because you hold fast the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our word or by our letter. So that emphasis again on holding fast, hold fast to Christ, hold fast to the confession, hold fast to the word, and uh, focusing in on a couple of texts about the confession, homologia, saying the same thing, speaking as one. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 4, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch yourself. Watch the doctrine. If you care about being saved, if you care about other people being saved, watch yourself and watch the doctrine very closely. And you will be both saved and an instrument of God's salvation to others. 1 Timothy 6.20, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So this confession 
this deposit, this gospel, the faith, sometimes it's called. There is faith as trust. There is also the faith as the truth, the content of the message of the gospel and of the whole of the scriptures. Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now what have we seen in those texts that we've been hastening through? Well, I want to highlight four things. The unchanging Christ, the unerring Bible, the unstoppable future, and the call to an unwavering witness. The unchanging Christ. Hold fast the confession of the hope. What is the hope? Well, before we say what is the hope, let's say who is the hope? Jesus Christ is the hope. And Jesus Christ doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that means that we need to be very wary of new voices bringing a new Jesus. I was astounded watching Synod at one particular moment when somebody said, you know, some of us have, you know, reservations and questions about various confessions, such as the Athanasian Creed. What? So, the Trinity and the two natures of Jesus Christ are up for grabs? Or was it that dreadful part that said some will go to eternal life and some to eternal hell? That's the Athanasian Creed. Is the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human. That's the Athanasian Creed. Well, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must hold fast to Jesus Christ. We must beware. Uh, you know, I've sometimes been told, boy, you just got to listen more and listen more, and you'll see the light of the different position. And the more I listen, I, I hear Richard Rohr being quoted and Brian McLaren being quoted and I'm thinking, that's a whole different Jesus. We must listen to the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. And some of those voices do not sound like the voice of the shepherd. We must hold fast to the unchanging Christ. We must hold fast to the unerring Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus himself said, Scripture cannot be broken. There is nothing else like the Bible. I sometimes hear, well, we need to listen to the two books. God gave us two books, and they're roughly equal in authority, according to that uh, presentation at times. There is the book of creation, which being translated is scientific books, and then there's the Bible. Well, that originally derives from a simile in the Belgian Confession that says creation is before us like a great book, and it's showing the majesty and the splendor and the glory and the power of God. 
And it does so not so much by our investigations as immediately. It displays itself outwardly in the beauty of creation and inwardly in the call of conscience. And so there is something like a great book and our, uh, the witness of creation is not the witness of the Bible. It is not a book. It is not written down as a set of truths that God has inspired infallibly. The creation of itself is sufficient to help your heart as an idol factory keep cranking out more idols. Without the written word of God and the direction of the spirit of God in that written word, we will go astray. And so we must hold fast to that Bible. And we must hold fast to the things that are being challenged nowadays. There's a reason we're gathered. We're in particular wanting to uphold the historic witness of the scriptures and of the church on matters of sexuality. But those are not the only matters that are being challenged in today's world. I think you'll find, um, you can test this for yourselves if you want, but most of the voices that I've heard pressing for changes on sexuality also sound an awful lot like universalists. They sound like nobody would be lost, ever. And that is, of course, one of the great challenges of our time. Pluralism, with many roads leading to God besides Jesus Christ, and universalism, where everybody is saved. Another of the great challenges of our time is the challenge to penal substitutionary atonement. Sometimes it only comes subtly, uh, a small change in a hymn. We're going, we want to put that in our hymnal, but we want to get rid of that phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied, and we want to say instead, the love of God was magnified. Who could object to that? Of course, the love of God was magnified, but the desire to remove the statement, the wrath of God was satisfied, was very telling when a particular denomination tried to do that. It's what you don't say that counts as much as what you do. When you're no longer comfortable saying that Jesus' blood on the cross opened a new and living way for us to God, and instead you sound like what um, Niebuhr summarized when he described classical liberalism. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We need the truth of the Bible and that alone will help us to uphold the truths of penal substitutionary atonement or if you prefer one word, propitiation. Uh, that is the heart of atonement. There are other aspects, wonderful dimensions to atonement that uh, we certainly don't want to deny but those who want to remove the satisfaction of God's justice and his wrath are cutting out the heart of the gospel. Another challenge that we face nowadays is uh, in that whole area of sexuality. We'll say a little more about that, I'm sure, throughout this talk as well as uh, throughout the convention. There are also the challenges, of course, from a whole different angle of dealing with the prosperity gospel, and that's very widespread in our world today. I'm not going to give a huge laundry list of the areas of challenge, but I did want to highlight some. I believe that pluralism and universalism is a great challenge to the continuing proclamation of the gospel today. I believe that changing the grace of God into a license for immorality is a great challenge to the gospel today. And whatever the challenges are, we need to be ready 
to face those challenges. Now, there are some folks now who prefer to call themselves red-letter Christians. You know, there used to be kind of the old-time version of that who just thought, well, it's kind of special to have the words of Jesus printed in red in your Bible. And so red-letter Christians, though, have come to mean people who say, well, Jesus talked a lot about economic matters or about um, justice and help for the poor, and he didn't say much about sexuality. And I always wonder which Jesus they're reading uh, because he was not silent on those matters. Um, He was not silent about hell either. You will not find anyone in the Bible speaking more forcefully or frequently about hell than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet we'll hear, oh, the radical hospitality of Jesus. Well, yeah, also the radical judgment and purification of Jesus. But at any rate, red letter. There's a couple of problems with that. One is the whole Bible is from Jesus. And the whole Bible is about Jesus, not just those parts that got put in red. Another problem with that is, well, they say Jesus didn't say a word about this particular subject, even though the subject may come up six or eight or ten or a dozen times in the Bible, but it's not quoted in the Gospels in the mouth of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus didn't talk about it. Let us think about that for a moment. That was the approach of the heretic Martian. Martian was very selective about which parts of the Bible he was going to grant credence to as the voice of God. Is the voice of the Lord the voice of Jesus or not? Is the voice of the Lord through Moses the voice of Jesus? Is the voice of the Lord through Paul the voice of Jesus? Is the voice of the Lord through Jude the voice of Jesus? Is it? If it's not, then what are we saying? If we're saying that God speaks one way and Jesus speaks another way, then we are really sinking deep into heresy. When we take parts of the Bible that that are quotes from God and say, but Jesus didn't really say that. We need to hear the voice of Scripture the whole scripture as the voice of Jesus. And then we need to realize that we look forward to an unstoppable future. I've already mentioned the challenges of disbelief in hell or just neglect of it. That's how doctrines and realities die, you know. They don't die from direct attack. They die from neglect. They die from not being talked about and not being talked about and not being talked about till somebody up and talks about it in the opposite direction. If you never hear messages about heaven and about hell, after a while, somebody who just out and denies it might make sense to you. 30 years ago, John Suk was appointed the editor of the banner. He served in that capacity for more than a decade. He later wrote a book titled Not Sure and left the denomination. He, among other things, affirmed same-sex marriage and doubted very strongly at the time whether Jesus would actually come back visibly to bring about a new creation, and more recently just said point blank, there is no hell. This is somebody who was the voice of the denomination that everybody read for years and years. Now we need to realize that uh, when we de-emphasize the future stakes, that hell isn't real, that Jesus probably isn't coming again. What does our text say? 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And just a few verses later, we're looking forward to the day, the day when we stand before Christ and when he makes all things right. And so when we look to that unstoppable future, we don't ask, oh boy, what will people think of us 20 years from now? We're going to look so silly if we turn out to be on the wrong side of history. Hey, you're going to stand before the judge of the universe. Who cares what they think of you 20 years from now? You've got an eternity to think about. And we also need to be cautious, even those who are still um, sound and orthodox in many ways, about simply de-emphasizing. I mentioned before that change to remove penal substitutionary atonement and the satisfaction of God's wrath from the hymn in Christ alone. Uh, I was always bugged a little bit, though I wouldn't make a huge deal of it, but I thought, well, that's, that's kind of a telling, a little Kyperian sort of thing to do. Uh, Dwell in me, O blessed spirit. When they came out with a different hymnal, I remember an old version that said, for the home of bliss that waits me. Oh, prepare this heart of mine. And that is perfectly consistent with the biblical teaching that the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the deposit of God's inheritance for us. The Holy Spirit is preparing us for the home of bliss. But in a very good, dutiful way, we got rid of that home of bliss, way too otherworldly, and turned it into, for the kingdom work that calls me. Oh, prepare this heart of mine. Yeah, 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 go do your kingdom work, and we need God's help with that. Did you have to get rid of the home of bliss in order to get the kingdom work in there? Come on. Again, I'm not accusing them of heresy, just a bad change to a song. Okay, but it's symptomatic. You will hear again and again and again saying, we're reformed. We're not just like those fundy soul winners. Well, I'd like you to win a few more souls before you brag about that. Let's win a few more souls, and then we can look at how to apply the gospel more broadly. Let's make sure people are headed for heaven before we give them too much advice on the niceties of how to behave politically. We need an unwavering witness. And there again, that's really not an in thing. If your witness is unwavering, if you hold something unwaveringly and with full confidence, you will be called arrogant by those who don't like the position that you hold. You will be told that it would be much more humble to hold your position much more tentatively. But if you know, you know. And there is no great virtue in pretending you don't when you do. When you know Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, just say so and keep confidence. When you believe in his word, keep on believing it and don't be swayed or undermined by those who write books titled, Not Sure. Okay, speak for yourself. You're not sure. Now be quiet. Let somebody who does know speak a while. Okay? Nowadays, you know, in the, in the broader world where people are sometimes debating belief versus unbelief, the unbelievers will not say, I'm an out-and-out committed atheist. I'm an agnostic. I, I'm humble. I, I don't know. Agnostic is a Greek word that means don't know. The Latin version doesn't have quite as nice a sound to it, ignoramus. The Apostle John says again and again and again throughout his first epistle, we know. And then he wraps it all up 
by saying, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are the children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Try that one on for size. Say that, to, say that out loud a few times, and you will not be smiled at. We know that we are the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If you're trying desperately to fit in with the world, if you're saying, oh, the church is going to fade away unless we get with the times and go along with the world, John says, we know that we're the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That is not a man who was uncertain. That was a man who had seen, had heard with his own ears, had looked at and his hands had touched, and he proclaimed the word of life. We must witness unwaveringly, with clarity, with power, with authority, not sure is not going to cut it in our time. It's not going to get anybody saved. It's not going to help anybody change. It's not going to help anybody who is a fledgling Christian to make progress in the faith. Sure, there are some things that we may wonder about, but there are many that we know and do not apologize for knowing. Know it and have an unwavering witness to it. Well, we're here as uh, people involved in the Abide Project. I sometimes laugh when I see how the Abide Project is uh, portrayed as this mighty, well-organized machine. Oh, if only it were so. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I remember a, a gathering of what was it, 15 or 20 people over in Orland Park more than a decade ago, you know, and, and a few things that kind of bumbled along and stumbled along, and I was on um, the steering committee before it got called the Abide Project, you know, just a bunch of people kind of talking to each other um, with not much money and not much institutional clout. Um, I guess I used to have an institutional position. On the other hand, I've never been a delegate to Synod. I've never served on a study committee of any sort. So, you know, what's that? Uh, um, but, but, you know, the, God has called, uh, has called us, um, and we are not a great machine that is well-organized or well-funded, but we do know where we stand. For the sake of the true gospel, the faithfulness of Christ's church, the glory of God and the good of his people, we strive for the Christian Reformed Church to uphold the beautiful, biblical, confessional, and historic understanding of human sexuality in doctrine, discipleship, and discipline. And so I want to spend a little time now on that particular matter. There are a lot of areas where we need to spread the faith, defend the faith, hold fast to the faith, but in this area of sexuality, I just want to review because that is why the Abide Project was founded, was to help defend that particular part of the line uh, from attack. Let's begin with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, because this Jesus who in the red letters is supposedly so silent on these matters did have a few things to say even in the red letters. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father 
and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is marriage. That's marriage according to the Creator. That is marriage according to Jesus Christ in his incarnate state when he spoke about marriage. What did Jesus have to say about sexual immorality? Well, you know, among other things, he did not make life easier. He said, if anyone looks lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. So if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. He seemed to think there was a lot at stake in this matter. When Jesus spoke to the church of Pergamum, he said, you hold fast my name. The faithful in Pergamum held fast to Jesus. But you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. War against them with the sword of my mouth. That doesn't sound like a safe space. To Thyatira, he said, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. Those are actually red letters. But to the rest of you who do not hold this teaching, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. And back to the book of Hebrews. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You can dance around with your various theological ideas and so on, but sometimes we do have to take as data very straightforward and blunt statements and then make our theology fit those blunt statements instead of the other way around. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Moving to the Heidelberg Catechism. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. And the Synod of 2022 defined the word unchastity by saying unchastity encompasses adultery, premarital sex, extramarital sex, sexual violence within and outside of covenantal marriage, polyamory, pornography, and homosexual sex. And of course, Synod was not defining anything newly there. It was just saying what the Bible has always taught and continues to affirm. Now, there are challenges to that. And so let me just identify three uh, positions as crisply and as clearly as I can. 
the orthodox position, the position held by the church throughout history and all around the world is this. Sexual sin is so serious that only the blood of Jesus can cleanse it. Refusal to repent of it leads to hell. Proponents of sexual sin, those who defend it or teach that it's okay, twist God's word, reject the worldwide church's historic consensus, and endanger people's eternal destiny. That, as I understand it, is the teaching of the Bible and the orthodox Christian position on sexuality held across uh, denominational boundaries, held across cultural boundaries, um, held across boundaries of time and place. There is also the revisionist position. Same-sex union is marriage, a beautiful gift of the Creator portraying the union of Jesus with his church. Refusal to endorse it harms the vulnerable. Opponents of same-sex union are spiritually abusive, teach toxic theology, and have blood on their hands. And then there is a third way, better together. Sexual behavior or belief is not a big deal. It's not a salvation issue. Family ties, church unity, and mission matter more. So keep funding our institutions led by revisionists or by functionaries, not by strong confessionalists. Now, if you've looked closely at the first two positions, the orthodox and the revisionist, it is hard to imagine how a third way could possibly be presented as tenable because those two are so at odds and contradictory to one another. Speaking of what the truth of the gospel is and how God calls us to live, that it's impossible to imagine a middle ground. And you will find those who speak of a middle ground will typically, they will find that as their halfway point to the revisionist position. Uh, We can pretend it's not so, but it is so. If you've been observing church life for the last 30 years in various other denominations, it is sheer presumption to think we're not going to follow the same track by doing the same things. What if? What if LGBT stood for lies, greed, blasphemy, theft? You know, let's just suppose those letters stood for that. Would the church affirm those who unrepentantly engage in or approve LGBT? Would the church just agree to disagree and say it's not a salvation issue? The question is, is it sin or not? If it's sin, then it gets treated like other sins. It needs to be repented of and cleansed, and with all the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to pursue holiness. It's not a salvation issue. Let me just remind you, I, you know, I've watched a little too much of sin, though I've not been a delegate And sometimes, I guess, I find speech is a little short on Scripture. This sermon might be a little long on it, but uh, when somebody says it's not a salvation issue, let me just draw your attention to the actual texts. In Leviticus 18, verse 22, uh, a man lying with a man is called an abomination. In 20, verse 13, it is described as worthy of death. In Romans 1, it speaks of male homosexual behavior and female homosexual behavior as impure 
and shameless, and though, though people know that such things deserve death, they continue to approve of those who do. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, and other kinds of sin won't inherit God's kingdom. And then it goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. You know, the good news is, okay, that's, you can't be saved, you're just going to hang on to that and refuse to repent of it, but you can be saved, and many have been, from all kinds of sins. 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10 describes people who are immoral, um, homosexuals, enslavers as being out of line with the healthy doctrine um, that's in keeping with the glory of the blessed God. Now, you don't really want to be out of line with the sound doctrine you know, of the glory of the blessed God. By the way, it's kind of ironic that I've seen a line of argument, you know, the church used to stand up for slavery. That, that's kind of news. That would come as news maybe to Chrysostom and to St. Patrick and to loads of other people who opposed slavery and saw the church standing against slavery in ancient times. But at any rate, those who say, well, the church always held slavery, we changed their mind on that, so why not change your mind about this? If you want to pull the slavery card, um, please refer again to 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, where um, homosexual behavior is grouped with enslavers. And of course, Jude warns us, it says, Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And then he goes on to say, Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Those are the texts in the Bible that refer to these matters, and some people disparagingly refer to them as the clobber passages. There's a reason they call them the clobber passages, because they are so strong and fierce about the consequences of unrepentant sexual immorality. There is no room to say, this is not a salvation issue. Read your Bible. Hold fast the confession of our hope. The unchanging Christ, the unerring Bible, the unstoppable future, the unwavering witness, and hold fast because Jesus is not going to change anytime soon. The Bible is not going to change anytime soon. The future is coming. The day is approaching. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And hold fast without wavering despite various challenges that will tempt you to waver. Hold fast without wavering, despite the urges and the concerns that you feel. Sometimes people do struggle with lusts that they know are contrary to God's will. But don't yield. Realize that when God gives you a new heart and gives you the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a war and it's going to take different shapes sometimes in different people between the life of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom and will and holiness of God and the fallen nature that still hangs with us and troubles us. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Count yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the church must support and encourage people who doubt, who struggle, who have hard questions 
and who have urges and uh, chronic temptations that they need help dealing with. But to declare that sin is not sin is not a viable answer for Christians. Hold fast without wavering despite your family and friends. Sorry to be rude, but sometimes you've got to ignore Sometimes you've got to ignore the people closest to you. If you pick up a book on how the Bible doesn't really say what I used to think it said, you can read that book and toil through the 150, 200, 300 pages, but it's those couple of paragraphs that talk about my child or my grandchild that tell the real story, and you could have ignored the rest of the book largely because somebody they cared about chose a different path, and so they rejiggered the faith to suit the person that they cared about. We hear again and again, oh boy, you know, my children, my grandchildren, they're going this path. Are you, what are you saying? I'm saying that the gospel hasn't changed. I'm saying that Jesus hasn't changed. And I'm saying that Jesus said, if you love your father or mother, your son or daughter, your own life more than me, you are not worthy of me and cannot be my disciple. Sometimes I wonder if too many Christian Reformed people believe in baptismal regeneration. People who've wandered far from the faith give no evidence of a godly life, maybe not much evidence of orthodox belief, but they got wet once upon a time when they were little. This is no guarantee of salvation. Sometimes that kind of argumentation that we can, we've got to change the church and its historic teaching and deviate from what the church in other parts of the world and other parts of history is, Somebody, I think, described it as salvific nepotism. Or maybe a word that would ring more in our circles is kinism. Kinism. I have an attachment to my kin so strong that I will change the historic teaching of the Christian faith to suit what my kin have been up to lately. Well, our kin just crowned a man as Miss Netherlands, if you happen to be Dutch. Those of you who aren't Dutch, you know, have other kin, but, you know, if you're into kinism, that's what my kin have been up to lately. We can't just define our doctrine based on what our family and friends are up to. We care about them, but we can't help them unless we're holding fast to the truth. We must hold fast in spite of what church leaders are doing. Um, ten years ago, the banner ran an article by Harry Van Bell. Whether Christian single people should or should not practice premarital sex is a question that may have been relevant two or three generations ago, but the situation today has changed. The church should change its stance on premarital cohabitation, recognizing that such relationships enable single adults to respond in a responsible way to the times they live in. The times they live in, the situation has changed. Well, when we hear from the historic church, we know what Calvin said. We know what Olivianus said. We know what the historic church has said. We know what Christians of a whole bunch of different nations and ethnic backgrounds have said. But who cares what they said? I'll just backtrack to a different denomination. John Shelby Spong, a liberal in the church, um, the Anglican church, you know, he 
when challenged on this, and it was told, you know, bishops from Africa were saying, what are you doing messing with the historic faith? Spong said, well, the bishops from Africa and Asia are just one step up from witchcraft. Scientific advances have given us a new way of understanding homosexual people. In dealing with the third world, this knowledge hasn't percolated down. If they feel patronized, that's too bad. Well, thank you very much. Dr. David Githy, the moderator of the Presbyterian Church of East Africa, said, how can they bless what God has called sin? That was his response to Spong, because they were also talking about withholding money and you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, how can they bless what God calls sin? The Bible does not allow this. My people will not accept it. When your missionaries came to our land, they brought us God's word and told us it is true. Have you forgotten God's word? Do you no longer believe it? So, you have the African bishop saying, have you forgotten God's word? And you have the American bishop saying, huh, huh, yeah, they're one step up from witchcraft, and we're very scientific, and if that sounds patronizing, so be it. But of course, a very open-minded person who loves all nationalities and wouldn't want to be um, narrow or anything. Well, we can't change the Bible. We can't change what the Bible says about atonement. Um, some are trying to change the Our Father. Some, you know, you've maybe read the articles about queering Jesus now, where Jesus and the Father are described, you know, they pray to the God of, literally pray to the God of pronouns. And of course, there's this ongoing denial, this universalism. Here, uh, try this on for size. It may not sound, uh, it may sound too harsh, but I'll say it anyway. A pastor who never warns of false teachers is one. A pastor who never warns of hell is going there. You remember Ezekiel chapter 3 and again in chapter 33? God says, I've appointed you a watchman, and if disaster's coming, and you don't warn of that disaster, they will perish, but their blood will be on your head. If you warn them and they won't listen, their blood will be on their own head. If you are a pastor, you are not just a functionary. You are a watchman. You are to warn whether people will listen or not. So hold fast, and hold fast in spite of societal pressures. I heard at Synod somebody say, you know, if we make this decision here, it'll put us at odds with Canadian law. Oh, I didn't realize that um, Justin Trudeau had been appointed archbishop. You make decisions on what the word of God says and worry later what the government is going to say. We have pressures from government, schools, business, media, none of them are on the side of righteousness. We live in a wicked and depraved generation. Face that fact and act accordingly. And hold fast while striving to reinforce the godly, to restore strugglers, to rescue the perishing, and to repel attackers. Reinforce the godly. Preach to the choir. The choir needs it. The choir will be singing pretty sour if you don't keep preaching the truth to them. So, I'm preaching to the choir today. Keep walking with the Lord and hold fast. Preach 
to restore strugglers. If someone is caught in a sin, the Bible says in Galatians 6 verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Rescue the perishing. I mentioned the watchman. We're to call people away from the flames of hell. What does Jude say? Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. Rescue the perishing and repel attackers. I don't want to be harsh or rude, but who did we think we are to think we would be immune to wolves sneaking into the flock? Did we think we were going to be immune to false teachers and false apostles bringing a false Jesus? Contend for the faith. Don't say it couldn't possibly be a treasured CRC colleague or someone who held a notable position for many years. It can happen anywhere, and so wherever the attack comes from, if it comes from a former teacher of yours, reevaluate everything you heard from that teacher instead of reevaluating whether they're right about this. You say, I wonder where else they got off track. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So don't be a hireling, don't be a functionary, be someone who is seeking to win opponents over, sometimes gently, sometimes more strongly. When you're dealing with a tender um, teenager who's trying to figure things out, you're dealing with them differently than you're dealing with a seasoned pastor of 40 years or 20 years who's trying to spread false teaching. With them, you need to be very firm and very determined. You need to use your brain. You need to get a backbone. You cannot just say, we all need to feel good vibes toward each other. We should feel love, but we also need to think about the truth and hold fast to the truth. I sometimes like what is said about David's mighty men and reading that. And when you read about David's mighty men, there were three that were above even those 30 um, super-duper uh, fighters. There was three that really stood out. Joshua Bashabeth withstood 800 Philistines at one time. Now that is one bad dude. You know, that is one tough guy. Eleazar fought when others fled. And when the battle was over, they had to pry his sword out of his hand because he was holding on to that sword so tightly. And Shema also, the third of the three, fought in the middle of a field. And when everybody else turned tail, he stood there. And when he stood there, the others who had been retreating and running away saw him standing there, and they turned around and they joined the battle again. And the Bible says God gave them a great victory. The three were mighty because God gave them a great victory. And sometimes it only starts with a few. What was so extraordinary about them was they would stand alone if necessary and others would rally to them. I think that can be a key when you wonder how this disorganized, underfunded thingy-bobby called abide uh, got going is a few people said, we're not budging. And then others began to rally. And more 
began to rally. And I would just encourage you, be those kind of people. They're going to have to pry that sword of the Spirit out of your hands. You're going to wield that sword. You're going to fight with using God's word, and you're going to prevail. May God give us grace to do just that. Let's say together the, the words of, of our text. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Dear Lord, we pray that you will help us to draw near to you, to know you better and better, to live in the light of your holiness, your truth, and your love. Help us to encourage and stir up one another to love, to good works, anticipating the day of your return, and help us to hold fast to you, our Savior, to your precious word, and help us, Father, to go forth in the joy of the Lord to serve you. For Jesus' sake, amen.